Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Edward the Seventh. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Howdy! Welcome to Rats Factory, viewing all the kings and queens of England, from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II, which I forgot to say last time. Really? First time ever, I didn't really? say it. We have finally completed the epic that was Queen Victoria. And so we are now on to her son. 20th century. Thank you everyone who's messaged us while we've been doing Victoria. So rexfactorpodcast.hommel.com, at rexfactorpod on Twitter, rexfactor Facebook. Facebook page, and you can leave a comment on the website. So, here we go. Edward Seventh. He was born in 1841, son of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, and he becomes king in 1901, at which mm. point he is about 59 years old. Yeah. So he's been waiting a while, of course. Is that a record at this time? Uh, at this time, that is the longest that anyone's had to wait. And his relationship to Elizabeth II, he is her great-grandfather. That's spot on. Did they ever meet? No. Oh, you don't? Yeah, we'll get on to that here. <laughs> he does, of course, have the awkward position of being Victoria's son. The difficult second album. Uh, it's more the difficult second Albert, because he's actually <laughs> called... That was quite good, yeah. unprepared. Um, his name is actually Albert Edward. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Imagine uh, if his surname was Woodward. Um, when he's born, Victoria says, Our little boy is a wonderfully strong and large child with very large dark blue eyes, a finely formed but somewhat large nose, and a pretty little mouth. I hope and pray he may be like his dearest papa. <sighs> and that's crucial. That last line, the dearest papa, that is how he is meant to be. He is meant to be a new Albert. Right. So he's meant to be exactly the same character, the same sort of man... And that's what they gear him up towards, and that is what is expected of him. Anything less... Right, OK, so poor guys, he's he's done from the start. Done from the start. Victoria also, where after he was born, suffered from probably about a year-long uh, postnatal depression, which obviously made bonding between... And she didn't like babies at the best of times, mm. but this was a particularly bad time. It was also the time at which Albert was in conflict with Baroness Lazen, who was Victoria's old friend from childhood and was looking after the nursery. So it's a very turbulent time when he's born. Mm-hmm. And so it's not a great time for mother-son bonding. So they kind of lose that. At 18 months, she still didn't think that he was ready yet to be called Albert. He wasn't quite worthy of the name. No. So he was always known as Bertie to everybody. Everyone called him Bertie. Someone's not even worthy enough for the name. Yeah. Wow. That's the standard that he's got to live up to. We will refer to Edward as either Edward or Bertie. He also suffers by the fact that he's not the oldest child because he has an older sister called Vicky. And she is something of a child prodigy, Albert's favourite child. Speaking and reading French by the age of three. At four, she's learning Latin and then reading uh, Gibbon and Shakespeare just for fun. And uh, Bertie pales in comparison and it's made very clear to him that he doesn't quite match up to his sister. He's eating worms at school. His education, he is meant to be the perfect king in Albert's mould. He's meant to be academic, he's meant to be very well-scored and everything, hold himself dignity, mm. all this sort of thing. And, and they don't want him, of course, to become George IV. They're very concerned about the Hanoverian genes, i.e. Yeah. Victoria's side. So they're worried about a dissolute prince doing all sorts of bad things with women and drinking and gambling. They want a moral prince. We don't. So, 
he is given this really rigorous education, but unfortunately he isn't bookish at all, and he really struggles with it. Temper tantrums, he'd stamp his feet, scream quite violently, throw things. Right, very stroppy child. And mm. um, he did have one affectionate tutor, a man called Birch, who saw that actually, if you were nice to him and chat to him, then actually he's a very nice child, he's very friendly, Bertie, and he, re- he advised that the schooling regimen was too strict, and he learned more from people and experience than he does from books. Oh, that's good. That's forward-looking. Uh, so what they did was they got rid of that guy. Oh, right. Okay, and uh, brought in a man called Gibbs, who was much more strict and humourless and in much more intensive schooling, so it was about six days a week, quite a few hours. Yeah. He was just... And by himself, of course, he's not in a normal school, so mm. just him. Poor little... little he's not at all happy, and he doesn't, of course, therefore win the affection and respect of his parents. No. Victoria uh, said, Poor Bertie. Alas, I feel very sad and anxious about him. He is so idle and so weak... Handsome, I cannot think him, with that painfully small and narrow head, those immense features, and total want of chin. <laughs> She's so harsh. <laughs> She's very, oh, very, very harsh on uh, poor old Bertie. However, he does show signs of improvement when he goes to university at Oxford. He's happy because he's got a few more opportunities to meet people and make some friends, which is what he likes doing. He's a very yeah. sociable character, but still very strongly controlled by his parents. Then in America, he goes to America and Canada in 1860 for the first royal state visit since the American War oh, of yeah, Independence. Of and he does rather well. He uh, Lots of public appearances. He um, opens the St. Lawrence Bridge in Montreal, laid the foundation stone for the Federal Parliament in Ottawa, watched Charles Blondin traverse Niagara Falls. Then he spent three days with uh, President Buchanan at the White House and his charm won the day and prayers were said for the royal family in churches in America for the first time since 1776. Yeah, smashing. Unfortunately, he's heading for a big, big fall. Niagara Falls? Not quite that big. Uh, he goes to Ireland in yeah. 1861. So he joined joined up with the army to try and give a bit of discipline to his life. So he's going as in the army to Ireland? Yeah, but not... I mean, this is just because they're based there. This isn't a campaign okay. in Ireland. It's yeah, just yeah. the army's yeah. based there because Ireland is part of the United mm. Kingdom at this point. His fellow officers smuggle an actress... <laughs> in inverted commas, uh, Nellie Clifton into his tent where she um, initiates him into the adult world, shall we oh, say. Yeah. Okay. And Albert finds out about it. Right. Albert, as a young man, his parents had, um, particularly his father, been very adulterous and the family had been split up, his mother was sent away, so he has this sort of pathological fear of sexual impropriety. Mm. So he goes into a frenzy writing a really long letter to Bertie worrying about blackmail, illegitimate children, scandal, saying it's the deepest pain I have yet felt in this life. Crumbs, yeah. Those, they, those two did a... The Victorian values really were Victoria's values. Mm, Victorian those, Alberts, yeah. yeah. Wow. So he went to visit Edward at Cambridge mm. and have it out with him. It was wet and stormy, uh, but he insisted Albert on going for a long walk, and so he was drenched when they got back, but still sat up, talked till about one o'clock in the morning. Right. Apparently forgives him. He's sort of happy that he's learned his lesson. However, 1861, Albert catches a chill, which of course goes on to be the oh, pneumonia yeah. which finally kills him. So yeah. December 14th, 1861, Albert dies. Victoria, obsessed with Albert, she loves him far more than she loves her children. He is the person she wants to be with at all times. So she is 
grief-stricken. Mm. Initially, she was constantly um, with uh, with Edward and with her daughter Vicky, but the doctors, quite keen to avoid being blamed for the death, in case they'd been a bit slow to mm. treat it in the right way, suggested that excessive mental excitement on one very recent occasion... Oh, no. ...probably helped to uh, finish him off. So, of course, Victoria thinks and says that it's oh, Edward's fault. He killed Albert. Right. Much as I pity, I never can or shall look at him without a shudder. Mm, good grief. And he's made to know this. This isn't a point oh, helping. Yeah. After the fallout from this, they've got to sort things out, and he needs to get himself married. Partly because he's a young prince and the heir to the throne, but also because he's starting to court with uh, disreputable ladies. Yeah. <laughs> so in 1863, he marries a princess Alexandra of Denmark... Uh, known as Alex. Uh, she's the daughter of Christian IV, elegant um, woman, bit, a bit deaf. Gets increasingly deaf as she goes on, but gentle, friendly, even wins Victoria's approval. Oh, crumbs. Uh, and generally they have quite a happy relationship, a few sort of ups and downs, but generally they're quite close to each other. But Victoria refuses to give um, Edward any kind of role. Because of the Albert thing? Because of the Albert thing, but also generally she just doesn't think he's up to it. Right. So he's got nothing to do. And so, like George the Fourth, when he has nothing to do, he becomes the Prince of Pleasure. Quite right. He goes shooting, he goes gambling, he goes drinking. Well, not such a much a drinker, but uh, and of course, women yeah. come into his life. And Victoria doesn't approve of this at all. The poor country has such a terribly unfit, totally unreflecting successor. He does nothing. He shows more and more how totally, totally unfit he is for ever becoming king. But she didn't really do much, did she, at this point? she was Well, at this point, as you say, she is grieving. Yeah. So she's hiding away. Yeah, do, doing absolutely nothing. Unfortunately, the two of them kind of... It's the worst of both worlds, really, because mm. she's in her seclusion not doing anything. Bertie, in 1870, becomes hugely unpopular after the Mordaunt uh, scandal, in which he was forced to be called as a witness in court um, for adultery. So you've got mm. the heir to the throne being held up that's for a court of law. That must be the last time that's happened. Uh, it's not the last time for Bertie. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. um, but so the two of them, <laughs> as a consequence, Bertie for what he's doing and Victoria for what she's not doing, unpopular. Mm. So we've actually got that spectre of republicanism yeah. started to rise. Yeah, yeah. But in 1871, Bertie saves the day by nearly dying of typhoid fever. And Gladstone's role. Gladstone. Yeah. So it was exactly ten years after Albert had died. Mm. And actually, the 14th of December, the exact day, was the day where it came to its worst. Mm. Victoria rushed to Sandringham, where he was, for the first time to be with him. The nation was transfixed. And he recovers. Really? He gets better. She Gladstone orchestrates in 1872, the next year, Thanksgiving service, where Victoria and Bertie parade together to St Paul's to great acclaim. The monarchy's all right. So he's better. And their relationship is quite up and down. Um, sometimes they got on very well with each other, and particularly when she spends time alone uh, with Edward. They actually they do get on quite well. Again, it's that thing, actually, they, they're quite well matched. It's just that because of that bad start and the warped view that Victoria has of what he should be, yeah. i.e. Albert, yeah. she never quite gets to him. But you can imagine a parallel universe in which they might have got on quite well. But at other times... She's not so impressed with him. She criticised him for going about too much. <laughs> to which he responded, What can I do if you go about so little? Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Quite. Glaston and Disraeli both tried to persuade Victoria to give him a more public role, give him something to do, 
and so that he can actually learn how to become a king. Mm. Uh, particularly giving him a role in Ireland, but Victoria refuses for both of them, saying that Ireland's her least loyal dominion. Worst place possible to send him. 1876, he goes on a state tour of India. Uh, that's much more Victorian thing to do. Well, I mean, Victoria, of course, had never got mm. to go to India. And she's not very sure about letting Bertie go. Yeah. But nevertheless, he gets to go, and he makes a good impression. Yeah, I see, it's personable. This is exactly the sort of thing you should be doing. Very personable. He remembers everybody's names, builds a rapport with all of the Indian chiefs. Not such a thing that we'd like now, but he wins a lot of respect from them for um, shooting an elephant okay. and then posing for a photo on top of it. Hmm. Which is not the kind yeah. of thing we like so much now, obviously. That would have looked quite regal and... Looked regal, and for and Indian powerful. chiefs, where hunting yeah. was a quite a big culture, it, mm. it was quite impressive. Um, he was very upset, of course, that this was when Victoria then decided that she needed to have a bit of a boost and became Empress of India. Mm. So he only found out about it, Edward, when he, in the papers. Oh, right. Coming back mm. from India. So he was a bit annoyed that he'd kind of had his moment <laughs> taken yeah, away yeah, from him. Refused to let him see state papers, but increasingly he was allowed to have some more ceremonial roles. So 1871, he opens the Thames Embankment. 1886, the Mersey Tunnel. 1894, Tower Bridge. He sits on a number of royal commissions. And 1892, finally, Glasden gets to send him some cabinet papers. Whee. So he's getting to see what's happening okay. in government. He nearly doesn't get to become king. In 1900, he's almost assassinated. Really? He was, uh, it was in Brussels. He was boarding a special train to go to Copenhagen to visit the King of Denmark, his father-in-law. And as the train pulled out of the station, a young man um, got onto the carriage step, put his hand through the window and fired a couple of shots. Who was this person? Was that he was a 15-year-old anarchist. OK, so it wasn't specifically to foster republicanism. republicanism oh, no, just... in the second, it was in Belgium. Yeah. Okay. He was saying it was um, as revenge for the Boers, because right. of the Boer organ at this time. But as Bert said, you know, I mean, that's a point-blank range. He just misses. So, you know, if he had not been so bad a shot, I don't see how he could possibly have missed me. Mm. Well, um, how many assassination attempts did Victoria have? Oh, God, it was seven or eight, lots yeah. and lots. This is the only one Bertie faces, okay, so right. he's all right. But it's a good thing he did not get shot, because... <laughs> yeah, full stop. In 1901, Victoria finally dies. Surrounded by her family, her last audible word after bringing him in for a kiss was Bertie. Really? Last Ooh, word. that is a surprise. And um, he was so overcome that he burst into tears and had to leave the room. Yeah, only, only nice things she probably said. <laughs> um, <laughs> if it was just his name. You can't help feel relief that she's gone again. She mm. was a drag. A Rex Factor winner as well. But mm. he, As you said earlier, he's the longest serving uh, Prince of Wales until now Prince Charles. Right. He yeah. is still the... Oh, of course, second longest reign. He's the longest one who has then become king. Mm. Um, he once quipped, saying, I don't mind praying to the Eternal Father, but I must be the only man afflicted with an Eternal Mother. <laughs> He's quite a wit. Um, he made a speech to uh, Privy Councillors announcing Victoria's death, and then he surprised them all by announcing that he would be known as Edward, Edward VII, rather than Albert I, or indeed Albert Edward, which is what his mother wanted. His name was Albert Edward. And that's what he was... Meant to be called as king. Oh, like a double-barrelled first name. Yeah. Um, but he chose... Did he choose Edward because he didn't want to be... Well, he says Albert's name should stand alone, but he's also... He wants to be his own man. Yeah. He's marking yeah, exactly. a, a break. But a lot of people have a very low opinion of him. He's just seen as, like George IV, this scandalous, good-for-nothing layabout 
he's not going to bring anything to the country and so many people mourning Victoria when she died it was seen as this great era mm. and that she personified it and Kipling Rudyard Kipling described him as a corpulent voluptuary of no importance Ooh, so people weren't expecting much was he that big and by this stage well health wasn't something which was going his way because whilst planning a very grandiose coronation he got appendicitis mm, nasty. Uh, the doctors warned him that he must have an operation or he would die mm. because he didn't want to do it he got all these people to come across the empire to come to the ceremony mm. and then he's got to cancel it he doesn't want to but eventually he concedes that it'd be better not to die yeah, it's better that they come back than never come back. So they postpone the ceremony and he has an operation. Now, this it's a new and risky operation for appendicitis at this point, only possible because of developments in anaesthetics and antisepsis. Many people still die during or after surgery this time. So mm. it's on tentacles. He very easily could have died, you know, yeah. weeks after yeah. becoming king. However, he survives the 40-minute op- operation. It's a success. The next day, he sat up in bed smoking a cigar. Naturally. Naturally. And he is able to have his ceremony. Hey. On time? No, it's, it's oh, delays. Okay. Um, the Archbishop of Canterbury, man called Temple, 81 years old. He was a bit dodgery and getting a little blind, so he had to have words in large print held in front of him so that he could... <laughs> like that? Like an um, uh, autocue? Like an autocue, but just in front of him in massive letters. Wow. And uh, Bertie was too weak to wear the St Edward's crown, the traditional one, so he had to have the smaller one, the state imperial crown. But Temple, in his old doddery way, put it on back to front, so mm-hmm. Edward had to twist it round. Very emotional when his son, George, uh, swore his allegiance, so uh, Edward broke with custom by coming forward and kissing him both cheeks in return. Oh, sweet. Because they had a good relationship. And he also had a group of ladies, current and former mistresses at the ceremony, what was called the King's Loose Box. <laughs> so <sat> together. <laughs> <laughs> okay, did he call him that? Uh, I think it was probably dubbed that. Okay. Uh, time. Now, people weren't expecting very much of him, but actually, he's not too bad as king. Mm-hmm. He criticised, well, he hadn't dared criticise Victoria. He had intimated Victoria she might want to consider not being so secluded and hiding away. So he wrote to her saying, It is all very well for Alex and me to drive or ride in the park. It is not the same effect as when you do it. The more people see the sovereign, the better it is for the people and the country. Mm, so he thinks out and about. And sure enough, he instigates grand public ceremonies where he is out and about mm. doing big grand ceremonial things rather than hiding away in Balmoral and Osborne. Um, use the mall outside of Buckingham Palace to create the Victoria Memorial around which so much ceremony now happens, ironically, yeah, given yeah. how much Victoria hated public ceremony. Uh, and he also personally smashed many of the busts that Victoria had made of John Brown, her Highland servant. Who oh, d- was he the one that hated him? Yeah. And mm. um, now, in terms of his appearance, you're asking about how big he is. As a young man, as Victoria had been quite happy to point out, um, he got sort of quite bulbous Hanoverian eyes, weak mouth, the weak chin, of course. Mm. And he does get a little bit of a belly going on as he gets older. But actually, for him, that actually gives him a bit more gravitas. Yeah. So he's got sort of a very sort of short sort of balding head, but quite a nice big beard. That's what I was going to say. I always picture him with a beard. Yeah. And that definitely would help. So as uh, one of his sort of servants, Escher, said, he was quite sort of wonderfully like King Henry VIII, only better mm. tempered. Yeah, thank so He's got this sort of bearing of that sort of uh, Hans Holbein portrait. Mm. He's getting on well in England. He's very charming. And he also does a good job of charming Europe. Right, because this is the rise of Germany now. It's the rise of Germany. Uh, Britain's isolating Europe, particularly after the Boer War. They're not very popular. 
1903, Edward VII uh, goes and makes a state visit to Paris. Initially a very cool reception, but using his charm, he gets the crowds back on his side. People in France like Britain again. 1904, the Entente Cordiale is signed. Oh, of course. He also makes state visits to Russia and Sweden. Because Victoria was the grandmother of Europe, he is the uncle of Europe. Yeah, I suppose so. Related to all of these yeah. people. So he is the senior royal, once again, mm. of all these different monarchies all over the place. There's also a lot that happens in this period in terms of the politics of the reign. Salisbury was his first prime minister, the one that crosses over from Victoria yeah. to uh, Edward VII, but he's an old man, ill health. After the peace with the Boers is signed in 1902, he resigns. And he's replaced with Arthur Balfour, who is his rather intellectual nephew. Who, uh, Salisbury's nephew. Salisbury's nephew. So his rather quick promotion led to the phrase, Bob's your uncle, because it was Robert Gascoigne <laughs> Cecil. That's where it comes Way, from. fantastic Rex fact. Formerly the Irish Secretary Balfour, where he's nicknamed Bloody Balfour for his um, strong arm in upholding the, nice. the law. Yes. <laughs> a lot of difficulties as Prime Minister um, for the Conservatives. 1902 Education Act was uh, controversial because there was compulsion to pay aid to Church of England schools, mm. which nonconformists don't like very much. Joseph Chamberlain split the party by campaigning for tariff reform, which was where you wanted to have imperial preference rather than free trade. So I, everywhere like Canada and Australia, you wouldn't pay extra duties on, but America, Germany... Yeah. They'd have to pay more. Splits the party. Balfour is able to be quite canny. He gets both Chamberlain and the Radicals on the other side both to resign. So they tell him in private. He doesn't tell them that the other one's resigned. And then he just accepts them all in one go. Yeah. However, government struggles, 1905, he resigns in the hope that the Liberal Party, desperately split by the Boer War, will be unable to form a government. Incorrect. Incorrect. The Liberals former government and then in 1906 there is an election and it's a landslide victory for the liberals they gain 216 seats while the conservatives lose 246 cool who took that the difference uh well mainly the liberals so the liberals have a majority of 125 and then the labor make up the rest it's not labor at this point is it not many there are some labor not many um balfour himself loses his seat but uh, things as they are he comes back in a by-election and stays leader of the party Mm. the new prime minister is a man called Campbell Bannerman a laid-back Glasgow businessman Um, very down-to-earth close to the outlook of the party faithful first man to be officially called prime minister right okay informally they've been called prime minister but Mm. he's actually his official title is now prime minister rather than just first lord of the treasury this is 1906 Um, he's also the oldest first-time prime minister since 1832 because he's 69 years old that is pretty odd. He has a bit of a struggle as well. Many bills defeated by the House of Lords. He isn't able to get a lot of social reform through. And also his wife died in 1906, to whom he was very close. He suffers two heart attacks, so he had to resign in 1908, and he died just 19 days later. Mm. In 10 Downing Street, which is the only time that's happened. Ah, Prime cool. Minister to die yeah. in situ. Um, rather, unfortunately, is so he was in the office. He died in office. He, he was, in was literally in the office. He was moving out. Yeah. Right. Next prime minister is Herbert Henry Asquith. Ah, yes. Who is the great grandfather of the actress Helena Bonham Carter? Really? Indeed. Blimey. Um, he was um, has another man who has a rapid rise through the ranks thanks to his excellent debating skills. He was an MP in 1886 for the first time, Home Secretary 1892, Chancellor 1905, Prime Minister 1908. Well, that's good. Cool. Indeed. He gives them a bit more direction, so we have a period of major social reform and state intervention, which we'll look at a little bit later. Yeah. Subjectivity. But as you said, there's also a period at which Labour 
comes along. 1900, there was an annual conference at Newcastle where it was agreed that what was then called the Labour Representative Committee would raise a fund to finance election campaigns for working-class MPs that sort of sign up to the mm. things that they support. So unions are now paying for MPs, so we've got a Labour Party. Also important is in 1903, we have a Lib Lab Pact. Right. Herbert Gladstone, who's a Liberal and the son of William Gladstone makes an agreement with the Labour man, Ramsay MacDonald, where they won't split the progressive vote anymore. So they don't always stand against each other. Right, yeah. As a result, in 1906, 29 Labour MPs are elected. In their first election? Um, no, there have been some elected before. 1900, right. Keir Hardy had been elected previously, oh, okay. but it's a big boost. They'd only had a handful before. So lots of stuff going on, but the biggest thing, and the thing which really involves Edward, is the 1909 People's Budget. So, he, and now, Edward's getting involved in this politics. He has to get involved. Victoria was a very pushy monarch, mm. so she's always telling people what to do. Edward's has his own prerogative, particularly foreign affairs, but because of what happens with the budget, he is forced to get involved. Okay. Background to this, all the liberal social reforms require a lot of money, and there's also a need to build new dreadnoughts, i.e. battleships, yeah. because of the German naval expansion. So that in itself, the dreadnoughts, will cost about £3 million, and they've got a deficit generally of about £13 million, which at the time was considered quite a lot of money. So they need a budget to pay for this. It marks a shift away from indirect to more direct taxation, based on the capacity to pay and with a certain amount of redistributing wealth. Income tax raised to 6%, death duties to 15%, lots of land taxes, which all the Conservative lords don't like, yeah. uh, as well as duties on cars, petrol and licences. The custom is that House of Lords will always accept finance bills. It's been well over 100 years since they last rejected one. Because th th that's a, just a tradition that's brought up. It's not Just a tradition, place. and that's the government has to have a budget. Right. You can't reject the budget or else the government can't govern. Mm. That's the crucial thing. Balfour and Lansdowne, who's leader in the Lords for the Conservatives, do their best, but they can't control the peers, and the budget is rejected by 350 votes to 75. Mm. Because the nature of the House of Lords is that they're not elected, and they're life peers and aristocrats. So as a result, they're mainly Conservatives. Yes. So even though the Liberals win this landslide in the Commons, yeah, doesn't yeah. affect anything in the Lords. So, we have a standoff. The budget has been rejected. It's really the biggest constitutional crisis since 1832. Was the that the... Uh, Act. Oh, right. I thought it was the Ladies... Uh, what was it? The Ladies um, Act. <laughs> ladies Act. Ladies Act. What was it called? <laughs> ladies. Waiting Ladies. Ladies. <laughs> Victoria's Ladies. Oh, the Bedchamber bed Crisis. Bedchamber Crisis. That yeah. wasn't in Parliament. That was just her... Um... That still foxes me, that one. <laughs> so, it's... A big impasse, and of course, Edward VII as the monarch is the only one that can really do anything to sway okay, yeah. what actually happens. So he's trying to persuade the Conservatives to pass the bill, which they don't. Asquith is trying to get deals such as him saying that he'll create lots of new peers to force the budget through, Liberal peers. Mm. Is stuff going on. Edward says that we need a mandate for this budget, so you need an election, win the election, then you'll have a mandate. Well, so people will... Um, are basically voting for the budget. If mm. they agree with the budget, they'll come back in. Yeah. Okay. 1910, general election, high turnout, about 86.6%, and there's a hung parliament. <sighs> the Liberals do beat the Conservatives, but only by two seats. Well, there you go. 
Well, they <laughs> have, uh, most importantly, they have the backing of now 40 Labour MPs and 71 Irish nationalists. Mm. And it's in their interests, particularly the Irish, to get the House of Lords reformed so that they can't keep blocking things. Yeah. So there's right. a real push now for extra peers. Asquith asks Edward VII to create new peers, but Edward says, hold on, hold on, hold on. The election was just for the budget. If you want to do all this in the House of Lords, you're going to need another election. What? Uh, and how long between the two? Well, they're, they're sorting out what they want to do, what kind of bill they do to reform the Lords so that they can't keep rejecting these bills. In April, the budget is actually passed, right. a year late. Mm. Um, but they're still trying to work out what to do about House of Lords. Asquith goes on holiday exhausted by all of this, which annoyed Edward VII somewhat, because Asquith had actually agreed to stay with him at Windsor, and he just forgot. <laughs> and it's at this point that Edward VII dies. Oh. What? This is kind of, So everything everything is getting more and more hung. There's the election that is, wasn't decisive. Yeah. We don't know what's going to happen with the House of Lords. Edward's the only one that sorts out, and he dies. And he dies. Right at the height of the crisis, really. Um, terrible diet, chronic smoking. Uh, 1909, he'd been suffering from acute bronchitis. He goes on winter breaks in a sunny climate to recuperate each year. He'd probably been on borrowed time for about three years. Mm. Very unhealthy. But when in Biarritz, uh, he suffered a heart attack, came home from Sandring, where he died of uh, emphysema and heart failure. Terrible timing. Terrible timing. And, of course, when Parliament reconvenes, because it had its break, Asquith mm. is heckled with cries of murderer. Why? Well, because the king's died, so it's like, oh, you killed off the king. So <laughs> in, in someone holiday, else that's to, what he did. Yeah. Uh, clever. Yeah. Um, but the point is that the House of Lords issue is unresolved and Edward VII reign is over. We will now review him. Okay. Battleliness! You'll have noticed during that that I didn't really do an awful lot of talking about big military campaigns. Yeah. In terms of what we do have... The Boer War technically ends during Edward VII's reign. 1902 is when it ends, and finally, thanks to uh, Kitchener's heroic intelligence, scorched-earth policy and concentration camps, (laughs) Boers can't keep going anymore. 1901 to 1902, we have the Anglo-Arrow War. The thing called the Arrow Confederacy, which is sort of a power in eastern Nigeria, were resisting British encroachment. Britain say that there's slave trade going on, they want to abolish this evil hierarchy, and it's superstitious, they want to introduce legitimate currency and trade. And legitimate religion, damn it. Indeed. And, of course, British might and power. So, they have a war, uh, capture the city of Arachuku after four days fighting before finally defeating the Arrow at Bende. Uh, so, some of the Arrow leaders are arrested and hanged, and the Confederacy is destroyed. Hanged? Crumbs. 1903 to 1904, we go to war with Tibet. Oh, that's... Oh, now this is where we get Gurkhas. Gurkhas play... Yes, Gurkhas play wrong on this. Um, Rumours that China were planning to give Tibet, which is kind of neutral territory, Mm. but it's under Chinese influence, influence, rumours that China were planning to give Tibet to Russia, and this would give Russia a direct route to India, Mm. which, remember from Victoria's reign... It's the whole thing. It's the yeah. whole thing, really, for the empire. And the Dalai Lama is refusing to deal with Britain and instead starts looking to Russia to protect him. Mm. So Britain sent about 3,000 troops plus uh, 7,000 Sherpas, mainly Gurkhas, mm. so people who are used to fighting in mountainous terrain. So at Chumikshenko, uh, Tibetan force about 3,000, had sort of you know medieval weaponry, 
mm. against uh, the vanguard of the British Army, which are armed with rifles and machine guns and mm. all this sort of thing. Too far away from the Navy, though. Too far away from the Navy, that's one thing they've got going for them. Initially, the Tibetan general tried to avoid bloodshed by having his soldiers extinguish their muskets. Uh, but when the British went to disarm them, a scuffle broke out, somebody fired a shot, and of course then, all yeah, hell breaks loose. And of course... It's not going to end well for the Tibetans. About six to seven hundred killed in a mass retreat um, when the shooting breaks out. Mm. Britain lose twelve. Right. Britain then, however, have to, the British army has to keep on going because they face resistance at uh, every pass, every village. They're progressing into the mountainous uh, terrain. Capture the huge fortress of Gyantse Jong. The Dalai Lama went into exile and Britain entered the city of Lhasa. Uh, so a treaty was signed which was never really enforceable, but basically they returned to the status quo. Britain aren't occupying, Russia aren't occupying. Very unpopular in uh, Britain when it, news of it comes out. They thought that the cause for war was dubious, mm. uh, considered it a massacre at Chimikshenko and a deliberate one. It was only Edward VII's support for the generals that led to their getting any recognition right. at all. Mm. The other thing we have in this period, we do have uh, some important military reforms, because after the Boer War, really show the shortcomings of the British army yeah. in terms of modern warfare that it took four years to defeat farmers farmers essentially yes so Haldane liberal secretary of war supported strongly by Edward VII made major reforms um, established the British expeditionary force which is trained for a major war and then the territorial army which is trained for uh, home defence and also introduced the officer training course so you have more skilled Officers, rather oh, than good. all these people oh, that are just yeah. given their commission because it's the third son of the Duke of Da Da Da. Yeah, that's that's a real rot for mm. armies, isn't it? So they have some good reforms, but on the other hand, these aren't really big battles. No, they're not big wars, no, and they're dubious ones at that. Pretty dubious, and also it's fair to say that the threat of German na- German naval expansion only really right at the end with the 1909 budget, they're actually starting to deal with that. So there's an extent mm. to which you're starting to worry are we even able to take these guys on anymore? Yeah, and that's why we have the policy of having a navy that's the size of the next two biggest combined. Mm. We want eight and we won't wait, was the cry for mm. dreadnoughts. So, we have a few little things, but that's not great. It's not good, is it? There's So, he's got this peace, Boer War, fantastic. Mm. Um, not a good peace, but... And the, yeah, Tibet, Nigeria... Military reforms is good. That is good. That is very... I mean, that still stands to this day. Yeah. Um, oh, I don't know. Three. Yeah, I was, I was thinking yeah. three. Yeah. Uh, it's it's not terrible, but there's just nothing there to give any real no. credit for. Yeah, three. I'm going to stick with three. I was yeah, so that's a, that's a six for battliness. Scandal. This is a bit more up Bertie Street. Here we go. He has a few nicknames. Yeah. One of them is Tum Tum. Mm-hmm. Did he give it to himself? He did not give it to himself. <laughs> so called because of his huge appetite and his expanding belly. Mm. Um, he had, uh, by the time he becomes king, his chest and waist both measure 48 inches. Jeepers. So he's put on a bit of weight. How, hang on, 48? That is big, isn't it? It is big. It's not the biggest. Henry VIII had a 54 inch waist and a 57 inch chest. <sighs> Goodness me. That's. Do they even make that size? <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> Um, he uh, he introduced a new fashion as a result of this though because he left the bottom button of his waistcoat undone is that where that's from? Th- because that's of the a golden rule tummy yeah and what? that's still the rule today yeah. leave the bottom button undone um, he had often about five large meals a day particularly he'd always have a big breakfast 
a bigger lunch, and often 12-course dinners. Five meals a day? He's got the wrong end of the stick with his five a day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was said that he used to go to bed with a cold chicken at his bedside, which would (laughs) always be bare the next morning. (laughs) That's amazing. Uh, But he was quite sensitive about it, so he definitely didn't give himself the name. There was one time when he was at a party and uh, a friend of his was very drunk, so Bertie put his hand on his shoulder and told him, you're drunk. (laughs) And then the friend pointed at his belly and said, chum chum, you're very fat. (laughs) And apparently Bertie walked straight out and that was pretty much the end of the friendship. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Very sensitive sensitive. about his weight. Um, And he was also an inveterate smoker. He used to have about 20 cigarettes and 12 large cigars a day. Another nickname, which is uh, a little bit more scandalous was Bonking Bertie. That's more like it. As uh, Henry James said, England has dropped to Fat Edward, Edward the Caresser. Well, I mean, they make it sound like a bad thing. (laughs) Indeed. He loved the company of women. He was said to have liked men better than books and women better than either. He and Alex had uh, what's called the Marlborough House set, where lots of people would come and their sort of fashionable friends would all hang out. And... um, Raffish, raffish aristocrats, financiers, money more important than class to Bertie. Right. In terms of you just have to be able to put on a good show. Um, there was a habit of corridor creeping mm. at this house, which is sort of like posh dogging, whereby the names of people would helpfully be written on the bedroom doors so that you'd know if there was a lady you wanted to pay a visit to, you could just pop down the corridor and... Really? Have a little knock. There was one... <laughs> He'll excuse the expression. <laughs> what, um, but Alex is here. Well, she's not involved in that sort of thing. So they, she would host some of the parties. Just going to the loo, darling. <laughs> exactly. And right. um, there was one uh, woman, uh, Edith Aylesford, where apparently two men came towards her room. And it was dark, of course, the lights went on. And one of them felt forward and he felt a man with a beard. Mm. And he knew that there were only two men in the set that had a beard and one of them was Bertie. <laughs> so he beat a, uh, a hasty retreat. <laughs> Um, lots of mistresses are conjectured for um, Bertie, for Edward VII, at least 55 in theory, but 13 confirmed mistresses. Wow, that is good going. Typh- when he had typhoid fever and um, he started raving, mm. uh, he didn't know what he was saying, so apparently he started to mention lots of women in situations that would cause embarrassment, so his wife Alex had to leave the room <laughs> because he was saying things he ought not to be saying. Yeah. Um, won't go through all of them, but there was Nellie Clifton, of course, the first one, the actress in 1861, that upset Albert so much. Lily Langtree was an actress from Jersey who was painted by uh, Millet. Uh, there was one occasion, apparently, where Edward VII complained, I've spent enough on you to build a battleship. To which she said, and you've spent enough to, in me to float one. <laughs> Uh, Lady Randolph Churchill, Winston Churchill's mother, was another one he was alleged Ooh, to have uh, that is scandalous. been quite friendly with. Uh, Daisy Greville. Hang on, there's no insinuation? No, no, definitely not. (laughs) Daisy Greville, um, later Lady Brooke, Countess of Warwick. Mm. Um, Extravagant socialite, she built her own railway to bring guests to her her mansion, her house parties. (laughs) Bet she regrets that now, it's got a mainline... (laughs) (laughs) It was more of a romance with her and his later mistresses. He called her his little Daisy wife. Oh. wrote to her constantly and she inspired uh, the musical song Daisy Bell what's that? Uh, Daisy, Daisy oh yeah 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 and perhaps most famously Alice Keppel dubbed by Winston Churchill as the first lady of the bedchamber <laughs> Alex actually invited her to come to his deathbed to see him one last time so she knew all about this oh yeah she knew about it uh, but Al- uh, Alice got quite hysterical so she had to be dragged out 
Um, he also gets up to some fun times in France. Mm. Some sexploits. Yay. Visits lots of brothels and courtesans uh, in Paris, including the Moulin Rouge. Mm-hmm. Um, but his particular favourite was uh, Le Chabonnet. Uh, Bertie particularly used a room called the Hindu Chamber, where his coat of arms were emblazoned above the bed. <laughs> and he had a copper bathtub, which used to fill with champagne whilst cavorting in it with prostitutes. That That is rock and roll. That that's is. A, that's, you expect that from rock stars in the yeah. 70s. <laughs> Not bearded, you know, Future monarchs. round monarchs. Uh, it was later bought by Salvador Dali, the bathtub. Really? Yeah. yeah. He also has uh, commissioned in 1890 a seat of love. Mm-hmm. It's a special seat with complicated designs of stirrups and supports so that you can just lay back and enjoy certain positions this is of entanglement. This is some of the best scandal <laughs> we've... I mean, does anyone compare to this? And this is rocking out there. This is, yeah. know, this is up there with George IV and Charles oh, IV. But, I mean, this is commitment to one single course. <laughs> And he just have, of course, this is all in private, but he does have some public scandals. Mm. We mentioned earlier the Mordaunt scandal. Uh, Harriet Mordaunt was a society beauty, feared um, when she fell pregnant by another man, she feared the child had venereal disease, so she confesses her affairs to her husband, including Bertie. Mm. Rather than forgive her, Charles Mordaunt sues for divorce and he forces Bertie to be a witness in court. That's, <clears throat> that's a very bold. I mean,. Not long since the days when he would have just been bumped off for doing that. Well, yes, but uh, yes, good for subjectivity for Victoria's reign. Mm. Victoria stands by Bertie, thick and thin. Says he didn't do it. Says he doesn't do it. <laughs> Terrible thing to say. And as such, that means the government supports him. So Gladstone persuades the feared prosecution lawyer not to grill Bertie in court. So he only has to face questions, easy questions from the defence. But he's very calm and assured in his answers. He actually gets a little applause from the court. <laughs> Um, There's no protocol for that, I suppose. There's no king at court. Um, or prince, as he was at the time. And at court isn't probably the most... Yes, yeah. indeed. Um, divorce ultimately wasn't granted on the grounds of the confession being unreliable because Harriet was judged to be insane, which a family was pushing for, because they didn't want their name to be sullied. Tragically for her, she's sent to a mental asylum where she dies in 1906. That's awful. 36 years later. 36 years later? Mm. Poor woman. Uh, and it's it's a scandal, it's a shock to have the heir of the throne appearing in court as an adulterer. In 1890, there's a different kind of scandal. The Royal Baccarat scandal. Mm. Baccarat um, is a card game, based on chance, and it was at the time illegal. Mm. Um, it's a game favoured by James Bond in the books. Oh, yeah. Last featured in the films in Goldeneye, it should be the game that he plays in, in Casino, Casino Royale. Royale yeah. And in the books, they do actually reference this scandal. I've read that. I've read the early Bond books as mm-hmm. a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've read Don't about this. Uh, Tranbury Croft, Edward Seventh and his friends are playing the game and they're staying near Hull for the Doncaster St Ledger horse race. And while playing, one man noticed that this man, Colonel Gordon Cumming, was cheating. So Edward, as the senior man of the group, is the one that they go to because they're all army men and he's an officer, yeah. so they go to him. And he decides they'll keep it quiet as long as Gordon Cumming agrees never to play the game again. Unfortunately, one of the women who is there and finds out about it is his mistress, Daisy Greville. Lady Brooke. And she, gossip, 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 leaks out into society, for which he gets the nickname the Babbling Brook. Mm. Oh, okay. So, Gordon Cumming doesn't like this very much, so he sues the other players of the game for slander, because he wants to rescue his reputation. And as such, Edward is subpoenaed as a witness, and once again, <laughs> gets dragged into it. 
So as the Daily Chronicle noted, it was um, terrible. The taste for the lowest type of gambling has profoundly shocked, we may even say disgusted, people who may one day be asked to submit to his rule. Well, yeah, but it's Bertie. It's Bertie. <laughs> boys will be boys. This is how he gets away with a lot of it, isn't he? He's just charming. <laughs> he just goes, wow. Yeah. On the other hand, and it seems odd to try and defend him against scandal, there are limitations to his status as a Lothario. There are limitations? Many of his supposed liaisons probably just friendships. Is oh, he... I think he meant because of his size. He himself complained that he only had to look at a woman and everyone starts gossiping about it. <laughs> In his later years, he had electrical therapy. Probably because he was suffering from impotence. So it's likely that some of his later relationships weren't actually sexual. How do we know this? What, what else did they treat electrotherapy for? Depression and sex addiction? <laughs> Probably <it was> not <laughs> anything, really. Just yeah. Yeah. see if that works. Uh, Plug her in, see what happens. of leeches. <laughs> but so as such, his later relationship, his later life, it actually doesn't have any scandal as king. Oh, so really? his finances were all sorted out for him, so he was actually in credit as king. His mistresses, they're like Alice Keppel, very quiet and dignified, may not have been getting mm. up to all sorts of mischief. So actually, as king, not quite so much going on. How do we do this? Do we judge him only on the stuff that happens when he's king? I think we deserve to judge him for the whole thing, because it's because of all of that that everyone thought, he's going to be a terrible king. Yeah. yeah. And that's not bad going for scandal. That's brilliant for scandal, surely. That's... Mm. I mean, what were the three that we used to have? We used to have murder... Sex with nuns and... Oh, and the third one was like uh, a one that all will remember down the generations. Beckett. Yeah, Beckett. He might not have had the other two. Mm. He doesn't have anything which is you know so big. And a lot of this is in private, technically. But I think he put all of his effort into one... All of his eggs into one basket there. And, <laughs> and crikey Moses. Um, Champagne bath. Special chairs. Appearing in court twice. I'm going to take two off because there's no Beckett and there's no murder. Eight. It's very boring. I'm going to agree with the entirely once again. <laughs> give him eight as well. Sixteen. It's it's good scandal. Yes. He knew what he was doing there. It's good solid scandal. I avoided the word hard. Subjectivity. Well, as we said, people didn't expect a lot of him, but actually, he proves a pretty decent chap at being king. Total contrast to Victoria. He loves pomp and circumstance. He brings back the annual state opening of Parliament, something that Victoria yeah. did very rarely, wore magnificent clothes, even reads the speech himself, oh, which Victoria good, didn't like to do. He even, for the first one, actually tried to edit it, <laughs> until Balfour told him that you can't really do that, that's what the government's going to do. Oh, right. <laughs> You're not <yeah>. allowed <laughs> to change and government give policy. give lots of money. <laughs> Trooping the colour also originates uh, from Edward VII's reign as a regular thing that we do to this day as you said refurbishes the royal palaces, uh, palaces he inaugurates the order of merit mm. which is still now the sort of the biggest sort of accolade that he, the subject can be given he did, does lots of other stuff as well lots of opening of things and um, uses city friends to endow a thing called the king's fund which is central to help finance london hospitals and there are about 84 hospitals that are either opened or funded partly by edward and his wife alex mm, okay he had his limits to state ceremony though and the national anthem which must be the bane of any monarch's life. Yeah. Um, he ordered that it be played at 80 beats a minute so that it would be very nice and uh, quick. <laughs> Zip through it. <laughs> he was a king. <laughs> <You> like that? <laughs> that's, lovely, that's brilliant. I just <laughs> 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 Etc, etc, etc. 
He's a king for everyone. He's very passionate about representing all of his people. In 1903, Keir Hardy, who was sort of the bête noire of politics at mm. the time, he was a, a Republican again, and he was the principal Labour MP. He was recovering from an operation from appendicitis, and he received a sympathetic letter from Edward VII inquiring into his health. Oh, so as uh, Keir Hardy said himself, what could be nicer? <laughs> what, could, what could be nicer? Um, Admiral <laughs> Fisher... Um, who got on quite well with Bertie generally, but he asked him, you know, why do you care about someone like Keir Hardy? To which Bertie snapped back, you don't understand me. I am king of all the people. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, Bertie. And again, like Victoria, he's not a racist. Oh, really? Both of them very much ahead of their time. When he was in India, he saw uh, a European official rudely push past an Indian Raja. So he sent his sort of equerry to go over and tell him that that wasn't on. And when the point wasn't made forcefully enough he then sent the Duke of Sutherland um, and he wrote to Victoria and Salisbury deploring the brutality and contempt shown by many British officers to Indian chiefs so as he himself said because a man has a black face and a different religion from our own there is no reason why he should be treated as a brute good man he also makes friends with various financial figures many of whom like the Rothschild family are Jewish mm. now at the time widespread anti-semitism and Jews not at any other royal court anywhere in Europe. And he actually gets criticised by people for cavorting with Jews. And he's very popular. Uh, J.B. Priestley noted, I was only a child when he succeeded Victoria in 1901, but I can testify to his extraordinary popularity. He was, in fact, the most popular king England had known since the early 1660s. Charles II. Mm -hmm. He had a tremendous zest for pleasure, but he also had a real sense of duty. Yeah. When he died, um, his body lay in state... No tickets were sold, so wealthy people had to queue in line along with everybody else. It's a very sort of democratic Good man. funeral. And the last day, um, the crowds went 12 people deep for seven miles. Wow. So there are more people that came to pay their respects to him than came to Victoria. I think he's a better king than Victoria was queen. Mm. But will he get the Rex back? Will he? <laughs> His funeral was the last great assemblage of all the old royalty of Europe. There are eight kings, an emperor, a former president, Teddy Roosevelt. Um, but the star of the show was Bertie's dog and constant companion in later years, Caesar, Little Terrier. So in all these great figures in royalty following along after the procession and the carriage of the coffin, and so did his dog. Oh, his dog was in the procession well. all the way through London. Was it a white Scotty dog? Yeah. Is that where it comes from? Mm. Ah. We had the Victorian age. And even though it's short, we also have a distinct Edwardian age. Yeah, there's a feel to it, isn't there? Uh, major social, political, cultural uh, change, rejection of some of the Victorian uh, values, much more social mobility and hedonism. As the poet Yeats said, uh, everybody got down off their stilts. Yeah. And it's defined very much by Edward himself, his joie de vivre, his indulgent bonhomie. He likes new things, foreign travel, scientific progress. So much going on in science. Um, Ernest Rutherford publishes a book on radioactivity. Marconi makes the first transatlantic wireless uh, radio signals. And cars sell a lot. Not a great period for British car manufacturers, mainly Germany and obviously Henry Ford in America. But Bertie, very early enthusiast, he loves his cars. Uh, he buys two 40-horsepower um, Mercedes. Whoa, sir. Not, uh, not quite the beasts that we recognise today. A Daimler and a Renault Landaulet. All of them are claret-coloured, but they don't have any number plate, except for the Renault, so that he can go around in disguise. Oh, that's his, that's his passion wagon, that one. Indeed. Although the fact that they all, including the Renault, has the coat of arms emblazoned on them is <laughs> such a good disguise. And he's kind of like Toad of Toad Hall, I think David Starkey described, and he dresses in this sort of very vivid tweed. 
mm. with his little hat on. Um, he'd be honking his horn whenever they were overtaking anybody. <laughs> um, he bought a 65-horsepower Mercedes, and um, he had a driver, a man, Charles Stamper, who um, at one time managed a record journey time from Newmarket to Sandringham, averaged um, 37.5 miles an hour, did an hour and 20 minutes, to which Edward would say, Fine run, Stamper! Fine run! <laughs> And he was also very proud to be the first man in the UK to top uh, 60 miles an hour. Good grief. And the speed yeah, limit at the time was 20 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a legend. It's a great period for culture as well. In books, E.M. Um, e. Forster, who writes Where Angels Fear to Tread, Room of the View, Howard's End. Edith Nesbitt, The Railway Children. Francis Hodgson Burnett, The Secret Garden. Beatrix Potter. Oh, yeah. Peter Rabbit. And Kenneth Graham, Wind in the Willows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love them. Lots of great books. I think you're right. I think it's turned into a hall. Mm. That's why I like... Because I used to love him as a kid, and that's why I like him <laughs> and Charles II. Yeah. Mm. And also we had George Bernard Shaw. Various composers um, going on this time, but the main chap is Edward Elgar. Yeah. He's, he's the first yeah. great composer Britain's had, really, since Handel. And Handel was yeah. not really British. Um, he was already well known for his Enigma variations, but in 1901 there was the first performance of his Pomp and Circumstance march. Was this... Uh, Victorian 1901 or Edwardian 1901? This is for Edward. Okay. And on Edward's... Um, so it's for... It's, it's the Coronation Ode. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Edward's Coronation Ode. And on Edward's suggestion, Benson set the words to the air, Pomp and Circumstance, which is Land of Hope and Glory. That was his idea? It's his idea to have words to Pomp and Circumstance for that little bit. Wow. And so, Land of Hope and Glory, Pomp and Circumstance, for his coronation. Crikey. He also introduces Sunday roasts. Really? Um, roast beef, roast potatoes, horseradish shawls, Yorkshire pudding. His bedtime He's the one roast. that really popularises that. Well, yeah, so that's, that never caught on. That's, that's probably just Levens's verse, yeah. Sunday roast. Mm. A mere, because that's what he'd have on a light day, just the Sunday roast, rather than another 11 courses. Yeah, true. Sport is, uh, really comes along this period I can't as believe well. he did any of that. Than any what? Sports. Sport. Well, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. Traditional and newer sports prospering, huge increase in crowd and money, um, much more popular for lower and upper classes, so it's not just preserved for the rich. Football is dominated by northern and midland professional teams. There are about 112,000 spectators at the 1901 FA Cup final. 112,000? 1905, Rugby Union, Wales beat the first ever touring New Zealand team. Yeah, but... In 1910, France joined the Home Nation Tournament, which thus became the Five Nations. Mm. Of course, post-Entente Cordiale, so not directly, but possibly over the yeah, 7th, yeah. you know, he helped that to come about. In 1908, London hosted the Olympic Games. Yes. This is, mm. It was going to be in Rome, but Mount Vesuvius erupted in 1906, so London Pesky. steps in. Um, it's the longest Olympics ever, six months. <laughs> Yeah, but they did sculpting and stuff like this, <laughs> didn't they? Uh, the marathon's official length was defined at 26 miles. It used to be 25 miles, but they wanted it to start in front of the Royal Nursery and finish in front of Edward VII, so they just made it a bit longer. So it's just for that reason. That yeah, so go past Buckingham Palace, isn't it? Yeah. Um, £15,000 budget. Wowzers. The Olympics. And uh, Britain finished on top of the medal table. Yeah, of course. Won 45% of all the medals. Mm-hmm. Now... You're saying, what does he do? Well, Edward VII does like a little bit of sport. He loves hunting, of course, mm. and he invents what's called Sandringham time, whereby when he's at Sandringham, the clocks are put 30 minutes ahead of um, Greenwich Meridian, just so that there's more light. time for hunting. Yeah. Yeah. He laid out a golf course at Windsor and a bowling alley at Sandringham. He likes trying all these things out, but he particularly loves horse racing. 
Yeah, he's not on the horses here. He's not on the horses. But he breeds the horses, and he becomes the royal's most successful breeder. Mm. His horse Persimmon wins the Derby and the St. Ledger. Diamond Jubilee wins the Derby St. Ledger in 2000 Guineas. Um, also Newmarket in the Eclipse. And then Ambush II wins the Grand National. So he wins Good all grief. the major horse racing there. Yeah, that's must fixtures. His yeah, so his breeding horses from those must be worth a mm. fortune. And his last words when he was told that one of his horses, one of his had won a race, his last words were, "I am very glad." That, they were his last words. I am very glad. Huh, that's nice. nice. Now we said about the Entente Cordial dynastic diplomacy. He's the uncle of Europe. He's the senior royal, and because there are so many monarchies in Europe, foreign policy very much something the monarch gets involved in wasn't a good time for Britain because of the Boer War universal hatred in Europe of Britain they're isolated and they think we can't do this anymore we need alliances yeah. we need some friends Bertie is the most cosmopolitan monarch that we've had for centuries speaks fluent French and German so he's not such a dullard mm. in his education spent three months a year holidaying on the continent and as we know he knows Paris quite well Paris yeah. <laughs> so 1903, he himself plans a state visit to Paris. The ministers weren't too keen on it. It's quite a big risk if it goes wrong. <laughs> He's trying to cover it up as a business trip. <laughs> <laughs> when he gets there, very unpopular. So he's greeted with cries of Vive le Boer! Oh, that's nice. They don't like him at all. Someone says, oh, they don't like us very much, but as he says, why should they? <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Fair enough. When he goes to the theatre, he notices uh, an actress friend his, that he met years before called uh, Jean Granier. And uh, he pushes past various dignitaries to go and see her, kisses her hand, and then says to her, in perfect French, I remember applauding you in London when you represented all the grace and spirit of France. And the French crowd, who sees all of this, love it. Word filters around. Then at the Hotel de Ville uh, a few days later, the French president very awkwardly reads out speech that he'd prepared previously. Bertie, master of the impromptu speech, in perfect French, off the top of his head... Does a very, very charming speech. Crowd love it. Mm. So from jeering him at the start, everywhere he goes now, he's cheered by large crowds, shouting, Vive le roi! Vive Edouard! Vive l'Angleterre! He's a bit of a Boris johnson type, the way he sort of just sort of bluffs through, bluffs through with uh, his charm. So, 1904, the French president makes a return visit to London and the Entente Cordiale is signed. Britain is no longer isolated in Europe. Got a friend. Nice one, Bertie. We also have other alliances. The Anglo-Japanese alliance in 1902 was the first one that actually yeah. broke the splendid isolation. That's organised by Lansdowne for the Conservatives. Bertie's the first monarch to visit Russia and Sweden. Russia's quite an interesting one, though, given the... Well, indeed, of course, um, Tsar Nicholas II is his nephew. Mm. And he charms him. He's a very awkward man, Nicholas II, but he's charmed by Bertie, particularly when he's made Admiral of the Fleet. Or an, an Admiral of the Fleet, the oh, British right. Navy, just as a... Yeah, token thing. Token gesture. He also avoids an awkward clash between the Tsarina and her mother-in-law over which one of them would take precedence when they go to dinner. Mm. So Bertie just took them one arm in each. <laughs> I said, tonight I'm going to enjoy the honour of taking two empresses into dinner. Oh, he's, yeah, he's a charmer. And he was nicknamed Edward the Peacemaker because of all these alliances and friendships that he's building all across Europe. We also have a lot of reform stuff going on politically. And some, even though it's a short period, really big stuff that happens... We said before the 1902 Education Act, controversial, but it was quite a good thing. It abolished the 1870 boards and put them under control of local government and the finance under local education authorities. 
So again, it's very much a system we recognise now, much more efficient mm. than what was being done before. In Ireland, the 1903 Wyndham Land Purchase Act, this allowed tenant land purchase in Ireland, but it was made attractive for both parties, so the government would pay the difference between offer and um, actual price paid. Yeah. As a result, about 9 million acres are transferred by 1914, so sort of tenant farmers in Ireland, having had such a terrible time in the 19th century, have now probably got actually better rights than a That's lot of farmers in the UK. Yeah. 1906, the Trades Dispute Act. We'd had, in 1901, a thing called Taff Vale case, where a union chose to strike, and then they were sued by their employers. They were let off by the courts, but then the House of Lords appeal overturned the decision and basically said, if you strike, then you're liable for damages. Oh, that's a bit much. But, Trades Dispute Act, on the floor of the House of Commons, Campbell Bannerman overturned the uh, Liberal Bill that he was meant to be supporting in favour of one um, suggested by a Labour MP... So this meant that unions aren't any longer liable for damages, and in fact, there is a right to strike. Yeah. It's a very big change, very important thing for unions. That's a huge social reform. But it's really with a thing called new liberalism that we see the big, major changes. The background to this, the Boer War, about a third of the people who volunteered for active service were rejected because they just weren't in good enough physical condition. Really? Which was a real shock. Yeah. And there's a lot of research that's done this period. It's much more sort of scientific mindset, particularly two men, Charles Booth and um, Siobhan Roundtree. Charles Booth in London identified age and unemployment as the principal causes of poverty. Previously, Gladstonian liberalism, you think it's because of moral weakness. Mm. They should be able to do it for themselves. Now they're saying, actually, certain people, there's just nothing they can do because of circumstance. Siobhan Roundtree backs this up. He found that in 28% of people in York were below the poverty line. There's a move away from Gladstonian liberalism. Laissez-faire, the state, doesn't do too much, provides the means for people to get themselves out of trouble, but basically stands back. Yeah. Now the mindset is, state intervention is the only way that you can assure individual liberty. OK. Big shift. Big shift, yeah. So, Asquith, as the Prime Minister, brings a new focus in 1908. He's not so much a radical himself, but he gives unstinting support to his two young ministers who really lead the lines. The first and the main of these, David Lloyd George. Welsh radical, very, very charming, known as the Welsh wizard, had a skill apparently for making people on different sides of an argument both believe that they were getting what they wanted, which is essentially what he wanted. Um, Rose to fame when he opposed the Boer War. He had to be smuggled out of a Birmingham town hall disguised as a policeman when a mob of 100,000 broke in and tried to kill him. Crikey, 100,000? Yeah. Good me. And the other one is Winston Churchill. Here he is. Who, incredibly, is going to be in, feature in every episode. Oh, yes. From now on. He could have featured in the last one. Could have featured in the last one, because he comes to fame also in the Boer War. Yeah. He was a war correspondent. Um, when the train that he was on derailed and the commanding officer was killed, despite being a journalist, um, he got himself a gun, took control of some soldiers, got captured, but then escaped from prison, navigated his way across um, the land using stars and all sorts of things, comes home a hero. Yeah. He's elected as a Tory in 1900, makes his first speech directly after Lloyd George. They meet each other afterwards, and a friendship develops. Fed say Churchill falls very much under Lloyd George's spell, and ultimately crosses the floor, so Mm. Churchill becomes a liberal. Mm. Uh, Both men of great genius, genuine friends, so you have incredible things like Churchill going to the National Estedford in Clangothlan, which is obviously the Welsh national thing where everybody speaks in Welsh. And you've got this arch-Tory... Going <laughs> cigars. Yeah. And then Lloyd George goes to Blenheim Palace. And Lloyd George hates all this sort of states mm. and mansions and this sort of thing. Blenheim Palace, of course, where Churchill is born. Descended from the Duke of Marlborough. 
Um, and he's, Lord George, the only man that Churchill willfully acts as his lieutenant. The only man who really says, you know, he's my superior. Yeah. follows. That's true. That's very unchurchly. Unchurchly. But they are the two radicals of the party. Some of the reforms, old age pensions introduced for the first time. Actually, Asquith bill, but Lloyd George has to push it through. People over 70, five shillings for individuals and seven shillings, sixpence for couples. Not a lot of money, given that a labourer would earn about 30 shillings a week. So the pension on its own is below the poverty line. Right. But this is the first time it's there's something. ever been something mm. provided. And it's non-contributory, unlike Germany, which means that women who don't work still get a pension. Oh, right. She wouldn't otherwise do. Yeah. And for children, free school meals and the Children and Young People's Act 1908 imposes punishments for neglecting children. Oh, that's jolly good. All jolly good. But the big thing is the people's budget. Cabinet are actually quite divided about it. There was one time where Asquith went around asking all the ministers for their opinion. And other than Churchill, they all pretty much said, I'm not sure about this. So Asquith then sort of turns to Lloyd George and says, well, I think the general sense of the cabinet is in favour. <laughs> so he just backs him up yeah. and does it anyway. Yeah, excellent. Um, very hard work. 554 separate divisions in Parliament. So there's one occasion, allegedly, that Churchill had to come out in the middle of the night wearing his pyjamas to vote. Because he's just yeah. up at all hours. Yeah. As Lloyd George um, describes it, saying, This is a war budget. It is for raising money to wage implacable warfare against poverty and squalidness. I cannot help hoping and believing that before this generation has passed away, we shall have advanced a great step towards that good time when poverty and the wretchedness and human degradation which always follows in its camp will be as remote to the people of this country as the wolves which once invested its forests. Good speech. Good speech. He also did some rather cheeky speeches, mm. attacking the House of Lords when they won't play ball. At Limehouse, um, Lloyd George said that, because of course the Lords and the aristocrats are the opponents, a fully equipped Duke cost as much to keep up as two dreadnoughts and was less easy to scrap. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then most famous term at Newcastle saying, Who made 10,000 people owners of the soil and the rest of us trespassers in the land of our birth? The question will be asked whether 500 men, ordinary men chosen accidentally from among the unemployed, should override the judgment of millions of people. So he's describing the Lords as uh, 500 men chosen from among, among the unemployed. unemployed yeah. <laughs> Doesn't go down very well. Now, of course, the man that has to deal with all of this... Well, two men, really. Edward VII and Asquith. Edward VII as monarch, he's the man, constitutionally, who can brook some kind of compromise or mm. really tries his best to get the Tories to pass the budget in the first place, but they don't, so he's pretty upset with all these Tory lords, but then he also isn't too happy about Lloyd George and Churchill making all these radical speeches. Um, he particularly wrote to Lloyd George about his Limehouse speech, saying that it was a menace to prosperity and a socialistic spirit which is peculiarly inappropriate and unsettling in a holder of your office. Yeah. However, Edward is trying to do things the right way. Imagine how Victoria might have dealt with something like this. Absolutely nothing. Exactly. Asquith writes Lloyd George after... Um, Edward complained, saying that I found the king in a great state of agitation and annoyance in consequence of your Limehouse speech. I've never known him more irritated or more difficult to appease, though I did my best. The king, of course, lives in an atmosphere which is full of hostility to us and to our proposals, but he's not himself unfriendly, and so far he has stood the budget very well, far better than I expected. It is important, therefore, to avoid raising his apprehensions and alienating his goodwill. But there's a lot of uncertainty, and Edward does have to take a bit of the flack for this. 
When the budget was finally passed, after the 1910 election, Asquith, Lloyd George Liberals thought, well, we've got a mandate, we can, the budget will be passed and we can have House of Lords reform. Yeah. But Edward says, that was just for the budget. Yeah. You need another election for that. That is getting quite involved, though. Well, it's getting quite involved, but it's delaying matters and it's really mm. protracting yeah. the issues. As Knollis, the Equerry, wrote to Asquith on his behalf, saying that to create 570 new peers, which I'm told would be the number required, would practically be an impossibility, and if asked for, would place the king in an awkward position. The king regards the policy of the government as tantamount to the destruction of the House of Lords, and he thinks that before a large creation of peers is embarked upon or threatened, the country should be acquainted with a particular object for accomplishing such destruction. And in private, uh, Edward thought the, the uh, suggestion was simply disgusting. Mm. But so what this means is that Edward, it's debatable, is it going to be possible for Edward to actually resolve this crisis? Is he ever going to accept the idea of reforming the House of Lords? Fantastic timing of his death then. Well, yes, mm. in many ways. But in terms of his subjectivity, mm. you know, was this crisis going to be resolved? He dies with the unresolved and we wonder, would he actually have been able to... I can't give him a score for that. ...sort it all out, that's the problem. Mm. Well, I mean, it's a negative, really, yeah. is the thing. And there are some negatives... Mm. to his reign as lovely as the Edwardian age is there's a sense now we look on it as it's sort of called the, the Edwardian summer before the horrors of the First yeah. World War of course at the time they didn't know that was going to happen but even then there was a sense of foreboding and a sense of nostalgia the sense that the glory days had gone so as uh, the spectator noted on Victoria's death we've come to the end of a great and glorious epoch we have reached our zenith the nation must now begin to decline in terms of international competition, industry is still growing, but at a much slower rate than Germany and America. So steel growth for the UK in this period is about 131%. In Germany, it's 522%. But and America, 715%. They're coming from a lower period, yeah, but exactly. at the end of this period, Germany is producing more steel than Britain. Mm. So we are lagging behind Germany. Yeah. And people are worried about it. In 1903, the Riddle of the Sands... There's a book about unveiling a plot of a German invasion. In 1908, H.G. Rells wrote uh, The War in the Air, destroy of Germany invading Britain by an air attack. Yeah, he was so foresighted. That Very way. foresighted. But there's this paranoia. They're worried about getting invaded. They're worried about being overtaken. There's a sense that this isn't mm. an era of greatness quite as much. They're worried. Yeah. And not without reason. So they're celebrating while they can. Mm. And Edward has his own limitations bit of a pedant about things in a very small-minded way which some of our previous some of the Georges had been mm. particularly about dress uh, Lady Strachey um, noted that he had a perfect mania on the subject of dress if a button is wrong it is noticed and commented upon at once and there was one time we admonished um, Salisbury who was Prime Minister for mixing up the wrong trouser with the wrong jacket He's just got an eye for... Fa he's not a Philistine at all. He just has an eye for fashion instead of architecture. Salisbury was quite busy dealing with an international crisis at the time, so he responded that my mind must have been occupied by some subject of less importance. <laughs> Little bit sarky. <laughs> <laughs> he was also very superstitious, Edward VII. His valet was, uh, valet was forbidden to turn the mattress on a Friday. Uh, he believed that an odd number of asparagus on the dinner table was unlucky, so he'd yeah, always ask for an extra to make it even. And he had a horror of sitting down to a table of 13 people. He was once mollified when he was told that uh, one of the women there was pregnant. Which bumps it up to 15. <laughs> Although, ironically, yeah. it turned out she had twins. Oh, really? So it was actually 15. Yeah. He does very well, as we said, in Europe, but there is an exception, and it's Germany. Yes. The Kaiser Wilhelm II. In defence of Edward VII, the Kaiser is a bit of a nutcase. 
So this is Wilhelm II. Wilhelm II. Yeah. This is one of the first world. So anyone would struggle to get any kind of rational thing out of him. He thought that Edward didn't respect him, and that he and but he wants Germany to be a world power. So he has this massive program of naval rearmament, which we struggle to keep up with. The Entente Cordiale and the Russian vision actually help and foster this paranoia in Wilhelm. He thinks there's encirclement of Germany. We start to get these treaties, which lead to start to get war. these treaties. So an extent to which you could say the Entente Cordiale actually drags Britain into the mess that yeah. will ultimately become the First World War. Mm. So though it's it's successful, it's a good thing. It does have not so good repercussions long term and indeed Edward believed when he died that war was inevitable perhaps the big thing we could really say against him is that there is something of a gathering storm mm. he dies during the House of Lords crisis when it's at its height without giving a clear way forward and so we don't know whether he would actually have been able to resolve it as well as it does get resolved but he can't really get a lot of credit for this he doesn't yeah. resolve the issue and he yeah. dies Yeah, very inconveniently other things going on because of the House of Lords issue, because of the um, Parliament being hung and the Liberals relying on the votes of the Irish Nationalists, they think, aha, if we get parliamentary reform, the House of Lords reform, they won't be able to keep blocking Home Rule. Yeah. So Home Rule comes on the agenda with terrible repercussions in Ireland, lots and lots of violence. Suffragettes are just starting to get militants at this point. And again, Edward VII very much opposed to the idea of women oh, getting really? the vote. Doesn't like that idea. He likes women, but in their place mm. man of his time but so we've got all of these really big things literally just about to happen in the next two years and so he dies just before it it's like the there that his successor might get the blame for stuff that he yeah George's faith inherits a lot of difficult problems they're not Edward Thumb's fault but mm. you can't say that the country was firing on all cylinders there were a lot of tricky things going on yeah so, does he have... Subjectivity. He does have that. <laughs> How many points might you be considering giving to Well, I think it's it almost balances itself out. Mm. I mean, they're great um, social reforms. Yeah. Uh, but there's, a, there's all these social problems that mm. are new to the era as well, yeah. sort of um, suffragettes. Yeah. Um, and there were great social reforms in the previous reign, and I'm sure in the in the next reign. Mm. People think he's going to be a terrible king, and actually he's pretty good, and people really upset when he dies. And the whole Edwardian age, to, it's, it's saying something's Victorian, yeah. it's almost always... Negative. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's disparaging, but uh, something Edwardian is is a style, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I think he actually was, for, for his limitations, he was as good as he could have been. Hmm. Um, I'd like to give him, if I may, <laughs> a 6.5. Ooh. I don't think they exactly balance out. I think there's more in his favour. Mm. But, you know, there is this gathering storm and there is, are these issues. Mm. I'm going to give him a 7. Okay. I think he does a good job as king. I think the reason I wouldn't go... And I would have gone higher, but for the fact that the, the real biggie is the budget and the House of Lords. Mm. And it doesn't really get but resolved. Can you blame him for dying? can't blame him for dying, but the question is, did it look like he was actually going was to going sort to? it out? Mm. Maybe he had a grand plan that he just couldn't see through. He did. But they had the Entente Cordiale as well, so there's a lot yeah. of good stuff in that. Actually, I'll give him a seven and a half. I think he okay. does a good job. Um, so that's, uh, that's 14 mm. out of 20. Longevity. Short one. Mm. 1901 to 1910, which is 9.25 years. On the patiometer. 
which is 2.91. On the patiometer, right. Not a big score for longevity. No, it's hopeless. But that's the problem when your man goes on for so long. He doesn't yeah. have a lot of time left, particularly yeah. when he's that unhealthy. Quite. Dynasty, not the programme. Four surviving children, Fred with the Force. I don't believe you. Um, legitimate right. children. They'd had six in total. One of them um, sort of died um, sort of straight after birth. But his eldest son also died, Prince Eddie. Who are undercounted a lot of the same traits as Edward VII, and he wasn't very good at school and academic stuff. He's actually quite a gentle character, but he'd been vilified by rumours subsequently. The biggie for Prince Eddie, however, is a rumour that he was Jack the Ripper. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The rumour, supposedly, is that he fathered a daughter by a Catholic prostitute, or just a prostitute, um, so she and other ones in the know were murdered. Mm. But he definitely had watertight alibis. Yeah. Not him. Not And him. he was possibly gay. And he wasn't really up to the mental job of planning no. these murders. Yeah. Uh, but he died in 1892, engaged Princess Mary of Tech, but died of pneumonia and flu. But it's only four, which is a score of 6.68 for Dynasty. So he gets a not-too-shabby total score of 45.59, um, which is just ahead of Henry Seventh. Oh, right. Just blow George II. Blow George II. But the crucial question, does he have that certain something, that star quality, that mark of greatness, that lasting legacy, which we call... Rex Factor! Mm, I... He's certainly one of those where, coming into it, you'd have thought, definitely not. Yeah. But coming after Victoria, he is quite a brush of fresh air. Difficult second album. Difficult second album, and he does it quite well. He does it, he does. He carries it off. Mm. I, you know I'm biased to people who are generally a good egg a good egg and indulges in extramarital activities and just is <laughs> nice he is nice he's just but does he have that Rex factor I like the Edwardian era and I think a lot of that is down to him mm. and he does have that certain something well he has that certain it. something that inspires everyone else to live the Edwardian lifestyle he sort of cre- he fostered this Edwardian atmosphere mm. which was one of fun Knowing that there's storm on the horizon, and yet it's true that did happen. There was a there was this change in attitude, mm. and there was a war on the horizon. And he did a lot for Britain on the national stage. He did, Very but much so. I mean, Cordial is impressive uh, diplomacy. It doesn't necessarily make him a um, have that have Rex factor about him, though. But does he have that something? I th- mm. I think well, certainly the French would have thought so when he went to visit. Mm. Do we think that now, though? I, the thing which I sort of found, because I, I like him, I think that's the main thing, I like Edward VII, and I think he was a good king. Yeah. The metaphor I give for Edward VII is that he enjoyed the view. Victoria and all of her various people have sort of climbed the mountain mm. and got, got Britain on top of the mountain. Yeah. Edward VII kind of walks around for a few years, enjoys his beautiful view on top of the mountain that someone else has climbed. Yeah. And then he gets to the edge and thinks, oh, that looks a bit tough to climb down. I'll let George V deal with that. So George V has to do the tricky job of going down the mountain again, dealing with all the problems. Victoria had to go up it. Edward just kind of enjoys it at the top. Yeah. And it's a little bit like Edgar the Peaceful in a way, you know, his sort of other people did the hard work. He didn't have a lot of stuff that he did himself to make it great. He inherited the greatness. Didn't mess it up. Was nice in his way. Yeah. Does he have something we can point to? Is he up there waving a metaphorical sword or Mm. a big... He's just waving a big glass of wine... Yeah. Okay. Well, hey, look at the view. Oh, it's tough. I'd like to give it to him, but that's—it's just a, a sort of a 
whiff of nepotism here. I just <laughs> want to give it to him because I imagine he'd be friendly giving yeah. jobs to my friends. Yeah. Um, What's it going to be? Oh, it's probably a no, but I'd feel really bad about it and write him a letter. Yeah. I think I'd, I'd have to say it's no, a no as well. I think particularly the the fact that the, the Lords and the budget issue didn't really quite get done. Yeah. And that was his big thing to deal with. And it's harsh because he died, but, you know, there are other monarchs mm. who died young and didn't get to achieve greatness. He yeah. doesn't die young, but... No, he just didn't get long. Dies of unfinished business. So, sadly, Edward VII doesn't get the X Factor, but... He gets a big... I mean, the, his arm would be covered in Cub Scout bounties. He d- yeah. definitely would. Just and it is in the first that the Cub Scouts... Uh, are born. Well, exactly. This has been an episode full of wonderful Rex facts. Lots of Rex facts, but not the Rex factor. No. Will his son, George V, do any better next time? See you then. See you next time. <laughs>